Romans 13, verse 1 begins, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these clear instructions concerning the governing authorities. We live in a time uh, when our American sensibilities, when our constitutional rights sometimes uh, blur the lines uh, when it comes to Romans chapter 13. What are we to do? How are we to interact with a a government gone awry, a government which is overreaching its power, abusing its constitutional order, and directly defying the God of all creation who appointed it. What are we to do? Father, it's this question that we have in mind as we come together this morning. As your church, as your children, As our Lord, we are your loyal subjects, and as citizens of this great nation. Help us to understand, as your word says, both for the sake of avoiding being in direct disobedience with you, that is to incur your wrath, but also help us to understand for the sake of our conscience. Give us clarity, I pray, of thought and eternity in mind. We ask all these things confident that the Spirit whom you sent dwells in us and with us, teaching us all things, reminding us of what you have said, and giving clarity to our spirits. Uh, Where we might misunderstand with our minds or have trouble in the mind, we have clarity in the heart, because you are our teacher. May it be accordingly here today, in Christ's name we pray, amen. May be seated. Last week we began this mini-series that I'm calling The Christian and the Government. We come this morning to part two of what will certainly be three parts. We spoke last week about the, the general principles outlined in verses one and two of chapter 13. If you missed that, I encourage you to go back on our Facebook feed and And I catch up on that sermon. The feedback from it was um, insightful and helpful. It was encouraging to know um, that uh, that you were all so engaged uh, with a subject that is um, hard to navigate. And it's hard to apply, uh, given the fact that the word uh, is universal, but our experience uh, on the earth is not. And when I say that, what I mean is, We experience the government a particular way in America in the 21st century, but our Christian brothers and sisters experience the government differently in some place like China or North Korea. And so what we must be committed to do is is to to understand how the Bible is to be interpreted and applied across the spectrum of those human experiences. The Bible does not tailor itself to our personal experience from one country to the next or from one generation to the next. The scriptures are inerrant, they're infallible, they are consistent. 
And so we must have a biblical interpretation and application that would be rightly applied to either us in the 21st century democratic republic of America um, or in, in, you know, 5th century, 3rd century Rome, um, you know, 16th century England or 21st century North, North Korea. The Christian has the same instruction regardless. And so we must be very careful when we interpret these things that we do not terp- interpret them through the lens of our American sensibilities, but rather simply through what the Scripture is saying to us. Now, with all that in mind, we come this morning to what many of you were asking for last week. I concluded verses 1 and 2 with a clear principle argument now, that every man or all people are to be subject to their governing authorities. And we began with the family and how the family is an institution of God, his governing authorities. How the church with the elders are an institution of God with their governing authorities. And then broadly, the civil order, mayors, governors, presidents, etc. These layers of governing authorities over the life of every man, including Christians. And how, as a general principle, God compels every man to be under authority. It's both good and natural. And ultimately, it leads to salvation. But I wrapped up the sermon without speaking to the exceptions. And uh, in conversation after the sermon, many of you were desperate to explore the exceptions. And it is my vow to you today that we will get to those. Uh, congratulations. That's where, I mean, uh, uh, an enthusiastic round of applause could be appropriate there. I don't know. You know, yeah. Hooray, the exceptions. Woo, the exceptions. So uh, Alistair, Begg, Alistair Begg says um, that we shouldn't be so quick to, to just desperately want to run to the exceptions. Uh, but, and while that's true, and he's absolutely right, uh, they are there. And so we'll explore them in due time. In due time. And so let's begin, if you're a note taker today, let's begin with number one. We'll consider what the authorities must do. Okay? You have governments, you have parents, you have elders, and in each case, the scriptures command what these authorities must do. Right? Spare the rod and spoil the child. Right? Rebellion is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. Or the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will teach these things to your children. So God has given commandments to the authority in the family. He has given commandments to the authority in the church, in the eldership, in Titus, and in Timothy, and in Acts. What are we to do? We are to govern, oversee, Watch out for, protect, and ultimately give an account for how we do so. And then finally, the scriptures give instructions to the governments, to the civil authorities as well. And so that's what we'll explore first in this passage, what the authorities must do. They, in short order, bring order to chaos. This is the broad statement over verses 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 13. Authorities bring order to chaos. John MacArthur says, God has put it in the heart of man, an irrepressible desire to bring order to society. And really that goes all the way back to God's commandment of man in in the Garden of Eden. What did he say? Have dominion over the earth. What's that? Give order to the garden. You want to plant? You want to do a, a row of shrubs, a, a row of crops? A, what you, you want to cultivate an orchard? Go for it, Adam. Go, create. Small c, create. Have dominion. A lack of dominion over the earth, even God's perfect earth, would simply breed everything everywhere. Stuff would just grow. And God says, have dominion over it. Put your mind and your creative abilities onto it. Bring order to chaos. Now that chaos only accelerated itself in the fall of man. But it's represented in the jungles 
of creation. They're beautiful, but boy, they're chaotic, right? Everything's just growing and dying and weird things happening. But there's something quite kind of majestic about you know, a, a row of trees, right? Lining perhaps a walkway. It's beautiful, right? It's an interaction between man's mind and sensibilities and the beauty of creation, which we cannot manifest on our own. You see that combination, right? And so this is clearly a part of God's purpose for man, and that extends all the way into the establishment of governments. God has put it in the heart of man, an irrepressible desire to bring order to society. Well, so in this, we start at a critical juncture. God commands the authorities how to behave, not the other way around. And this is important, friends. God commands the authorities how to behave, not the other way around. There is a national law, and there is God's moral law. One of these is eternal. The other is temporal. We have talked about this before in our study of the Torah, whether we were in Exodus or Numbers or even in Revelation. How, um, what, briefly, one second. Can we turn my microphone down? Just a hint. I can tell it's on the verge of feeding back, and we're doing a little echo. Just a little bit, not a lot. Yeah. We considered this in the study of the Torah, that God gave to Israel uh, the commandments, and some of those commandments are ceremonial, you know, washings and cleansings and things like that. There's wisdom in them, but they were specific to Israel for a specific time and purpose. But his moral law, namely the Ten Commandments, they are eternal. If you look at the state of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the, the millennial kingdom of Christ, the second or the new heaven and the new earth, what law governs these spaces? It's the Ten Commandments. There will be no murder, nor theft, nor envy, nor adultery in heaven. Why? It's governed by God's eternal moral law. And so we recognize a couple of things here. That one law is temporal, another is eternal, and God commands authorities how to behave. Therefore, an authority is either in rebellion against God or in submission to him and his divine prescription for man. The founders of our nation understood this when they penned the opening line of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident, meaning obvious, derived from wise observation of the natural order, derived from human reason, and derived in what they call, in theological terms, from natural revelation. Well, what is so obvious and self-evident? That all men are created equal. They are endowed by their capital C creator in our Declaration of Independence, implying divinity. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what the framers were saying is that God grants to men the right to live, not the government. Government does not grant the right to life. God does. See, God prescribes to the authorities what they are to do. And so therefore, if an authority endorses unjust death, it infringes upon the duty God prescribed for it. So with the passage many decades ago of Roe versus Wade, the governing authorities endorsed and legalized unjust right to murder the preborn. And in doing so, they failed in what God commanded them to do. They failed to render proper judgment. Judgment is giving to the authorities, or excuse me, giving to one what he is earned. Well, what has the preborn earned? The right to life. 
given to them by their creator. And so they failed to render to the preborn what they are due. That right to life is self-evident. The right to live is enumerated in God's revealed law. Thou shalt not murder. And the death of the preborn is a self-evident evil to anyone who observes the practice with any level of intellectual honesty. It is self-evidently evil, heinous, and horrendous. Now, this isn't to heap judgment or condemnation on a woman who, ha- or, or even a, a man who pressured his wife or girlfriend into such an act, an act from which they have repented and have grief. This isn't to do so. There's forgiveness and grace in Christ. We're speaking broad strokes, top level, what the governing authorities condone and what they forbid. So as we speak on what God means when through the apostle he states that the governing authorities exercise judgment over the population, we must remember then that God's prescription is for the authority, render to the individual what he has earned. And so that brings us to the first thing that authorities must do. If you're taking notes, they must, A, exercise judgment. Okay, this is a note-taker's dream come true this weekend. If you follow my notes along closely, you will leave here tonight with my entire sermon in outline form. They are to exercise judgment. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist, look, will incur judgment. Judgment from who? Judgment from the authorities. They are to exercise judgment. Remember, judgment means render to the individual what he has earned. So did you speed? You earned the speeding ticket, okay, right? Did you assault? Then you earned the consequence. Render to the individual what he has earned. The list that follows in verses 3 and 4 is, if you will, a building out of that statement. That's the first thing. Render to the individual what he has earned. David, in 2 Samuel 8, at the high of his career as Israel's king, there's a summary statement just before his fall with Bathsheba, by the way, is that he he was rendering judgment rightly for the whole nation. And the storyteller puts that statement at the end of chapter 8, right before chapter 9 and David's fall with Bathsheba. He does so purposefully because David's time as a good king who honored, feared, and obeyed the Lord was summarized. The, the pinnacle of it was the proper rendering of judgment for all of the nation. And then beginning with his fall, with Bathsheba, his cover-up, his abuse of power, he began to slip from rendering proper judgment over his own children, over others, and over himself. We are living in America in a time when the individual receiving what they have earned is evaporating in the pressure cooker, if you will, of wokeness and critical theory. Just a couple of weeks ago, a school board decided that they needed to change the disciplinary policy because too many children with a particular color of skin were being punished. What they failed to acknowledge is that this is an undermining of the exercise of judgment. We must render to the individual what they have earned. There is no good consequence from ignoring this mandate from God. So the first thing that the authorities must do is exercise judgment. The second thing God says that they do is restrain evil. They restrain evil. Look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. A terror to bad conduct. And then Paul asks rhetorically, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? That's ridiculous. He's in the position of authority. He has the power. He has the ability to arrest, to fine, to imprison To execute. You would have no fear of that? What's the point? The point is, 
what God commands them to do is to restrain evil. When you consider the Garden of Eden and what it was that Adam and Eve partook of, they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore, ever since then, every human being descended from Adam and Eve, which is everyone, uh, has within them the knowledge of good and evil. There are certain things that are universally and obviously evil no matter where you stand or are in the world. Thou shalt not murder is a, a, a Hebrew commandment right, given to the Hebrew people by the Hebrew God. And yet, I can't think of a country on the planet that does not have on its law books that it's illegal to take the life of another citizen. It's universally illegal to murder. Why? Because of the knowledge of the tree of the good and evil. Excuse me, because of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? Same thing goes for theft. I can't think of any, any country on the planet, and, and I read, I try, right? Where it's like, yeah, totally just steal stuff. Just if you want it, take it, and uh, it's okay. Now, we're slowly getting to that here in America, as our governing authorities fail to render judgment. But it's technically on the books, it's illegal. Right, why? Because of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every man has within him the understanding of the difference between good and evil. Government then, Paul says, is a gift from God to restrain the evil that is naturally occurring in the heart of man. We have seen in the last few years what it looks like when government fails to restrain evil. When the riots of 2020 broke out in some of our major cities, the governors and the mayors said, we need to let them vent their anger. And all it did was cause the needless destruction of private property, the endangering of human life, the loss of human life, some of which these cities have still not yet recovered from. Because why? Because they failed to restrain evil by enforcing the law. The defund the police movement picked up steam in democratically controlled and governed cities across the United States over the last few years. Politicians ran on the slogan, defund the police. That is, until in these same cities and districts, Crime spiked, murder rates skyrocketed, businesses closed, and so on. And then those same politicians completely reversed course 12 to 18 months later, now advocating for more police, not less. But they can't get any. They can't get anyone to hire. They're, fa- they, they, they're hiring unqualified men and women to do the job. Why? Because now no one wants to work in these places as the agent of restraint because the governing authorities failed to restrain evil. You see, we watched the cycle of disobedience to this command unfold in many of our cities across the last couple of years. When the government fails to restrain evil, evil grows and spreads because the heart of man is evil. Fourthly, what the authorities must do is bring praise to those who do good. Excuse me, thirdly, I'm sorry. Bring praise to those who do good. Restrain evil and then bring praise to those who do good. Again, look at verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do good, and you will receive his approval. Do good, and you will receive his approval. Billy Graham is a good example of this. He was honored in his passing through a ceremonial process. He was the fourth private citizen to lie in honor at the Capitol Rotunda. If you tour the Billy Graham Library, you'll find evidence of various exchanges and honors with U.S. presidents over the years of his ministry. He was called in publications America's pastor, and yet he was uncompromising on the infallibility of God's word and the moral judgment God lays on every human being. He was not honored because he, was, because he compromised. He was honored because he did 
good. He didn't lead a revolt with all of his many, you know, crusades. Right? They weren't crusades to take up arms. They were crusades to take up the word. And so the fourth or the third instruction for government is to bring praise to those who do good. The fifth, excuse me, the fourth, I'm sorry. Sheesh, trying to help you. And I'm, the fourth thing, D, is to execute capital punishment. Execute capital punishment. Four, verse four, he is God's servant for you, but if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain. This is a direct insinuation towards capital punishment. This is perfectly consistent with the moral law of God. Let's bounce around the scriptures for a moment. Deuteronomy, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21, God says, It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What's the point? A life can only be paid for with a life. God's perfect law. Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Literally, capital punishment. In Matthew 26, 52, after, uh, I think it was Peter, maybe it was Judas, not Iscariot, uh, took the ear off of one of the servants who came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, live by the sword, die by the sword. It was a direct endorsement of God's law of capital punishment. In Acts 25, 11, Paul submits himself to capital punishment, saying, if I'm worthy of it, Put me to death if I've done something worthy of the death penalty. The Old Testament prescribes the death penalty for striking your parent, for murder, for rape, for witchcraft, for false prophecy, for homosexuality, for blasphemy, and more. God was not afraid uh, to prescribe the greatest and final of consequence. Um, Obviously, the, the laws in our land are a, far, are a far cry from this, which is why most of the criminal behavior is done by repeat offenders. If I may be so bold, if the rapist were simply executed for his crime, he could not be a repeat offender 10, 15, or 20 years later. When he's finally let out of a prison where during his time, he simply learned how to be a better criminal. In the Old Testament order, there was no prison. There were no lockups. The closest thing to it would be a retreat to what's called a city of refuge, where if you committed manslaughter, an accidental death of someone, you were to live inside the city of refuge. But that's not a penitentiary. That's a, pl- a city where you would have to live but you could work, and you could pay your debt. In Jeremiah, uh, in the life of Jeremiah, the, the king sought to lock Jeremiah up because he was, he was preaching that uh, the, city, the city would fall to the hands of the enemy. And the king didn't like this, and so he said, lock him up, but there was no prison to lock him up in. They specifically had to fashion one because this was not God's prescription. God's prescription for wrongdoing was corporal punishment, which is a lashing, a, a beating, if you will, a spanking, uh, which would immediately restore the man's dignity because once it was finished, then it was over. Also a financial restitution, but you can't earn financial restitution if you're locked up in a prison. And then finally, there's the death penalty. And so there were few repeat offenders, and uh, there was no prison. There wasn't even a prison in America until the Quakers introduced the idea, and that's why it's called a penitentiary. And if you think about it for a moment, what does that word sound like? Penitentiary. Sounds like the word penitent, right? Penitent. What is penitent? It's repentant. 
They called it a penitentiary because they thought that if the criminal were locked up and left enough left with himself and perhaps the Bible, then he would become penitent. He would repent of his wrongdoing while confined. Penitentiary. Well, there's a happy point in the sermon. But this is what God prescribes for governments. This is what they must do. They must execute capital punishment. The failure to do so leads to the rampant crime. We have the, we have the most crime per capita in the world in America and the most number of people in the world per capita in prison. It's like, almost like the system isn't working. Right? Well... They are to execute capital punishment. E, they are ministers of God for you, or servants of God. Look at verse 4 again. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God. And avenger, which is, of course, borrowing from the language of the Old Testament, the avenger of blood. He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He is the servant You know who else is called a servant in the New Testament? The diaconia in the church, the deacons. Same word. Same word. Ultimately, they are ministers. They are servants. John Knox, speaking to Queen Mary, otherwise known as Bloody Mary, for her persecution of the Protestant church, he said to her, God commands queens to be nurses unto his people. To which she said something like, uh, your church or that church is not something that I will to nurse. I do not will to care for it. To which John Knox said, your will is of no account, madam. God commands it. Your will is irrelevant. And so in this is a perspective, two sides of a coin. Number one, all governments, no matter good or evil, are serving God's greater plan to govern the world. All governments, whether good or evil, are serving God's greater plan to govern the world. Consider the story of Job. What you read is that in the opening chapters when when Satan is allowed to afflict Job. What do we read? We read a few things that are strange. Fire fell from heaven. But we also read that various people groups known by names, the names of the communities, the names of the people, the Chaldeans or the... I can't remember the names of the people now because I didn't plan to do this. It says, they invaded... And then from this side, this other group invaded. They took, they burned, they murdered. These governing authorities were invading God's man. And yet, what was happening? Everything according to God's perfect, ultimate plan. Job couldn't have seen that at the time, but he certainly saw it in the end. In some cases, an evil government is given to a population as God's judgment. And I would argue that that's where we stand today in America. We've been given an evil and wicked government because the heart of the American citizen is predominantly evil and wicked and unrepentant. And so we have what we asked for. But no matter what, since all authority is given by God, verse 1, and every authority is instituted by him, it is, it is given by him, they are on loan to human beings, since that is the case, God's broader purpose is executed by them. They are his servants, get this, whether they know it or want it or not. They are his servants. They are his ministers. And so you have that case. But also in this, there is the prescription. There is a perspective and a prescription that they are commanded to uphold his moral law. 
And when those governing authorities fail to do so, it is the duty of the Christian to say as much, to live righteously, and to be model citizens so that our preaching might be heard. So this is what the government must do, what the authorities must do. Now let's consider number two, what the Christian must do. And finally, we come to the exceptions. Woo! Sorry, okay. What the Christian must do, firstly, we explored last week. Obey as a matter of principle unto God. Obey and have a clear conscience. But, if you're taking notes, what the Christian must also do is, A, resist when government commands what God forbids. However, there's a right way to resist and a wrong way. Remember from last week, 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, including kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, a wicked ruler is not the enemy of the Christian, but the mission field. And we certainly do not win them to Christ through violent insurrection. But we must resist when the government commands what God forbids. And so the question then is, how? Well, the first how is, number one, prayerfully. I urge that supplication, prayer, and intercession be made for kings. A vibrant prayer life insists we maintain our relationship with Christ, even as we navigate the potentially tricky waters of resisting governing authorities. Samuel said, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Sinning against the Lord by stopping intercession. We must not be guilty of one violation of Scripture as we attempt a more challenging obedience to another. Or simply put, we must not resist the government and cease to pray. That's silly. We're walking a line of disobedience. Failing to pray for our authorities is disobedience. How can we seek then and ask God to bless our resistance as we disobey His commands to pray? So firstly... When it comes to resisting the government when they command what God forbids, we must do so prayerfully. Secondly, we must do so cleverly. Cleverly. Be wise as the serpent and gentle as the dove. Consider this from Exodus 1, a familiar story to many of us. When the people of Israel in Egypt became a large nation, millions in number, they became a terror to the Pharaoh. He feared their power. And so they subjected them, made them build cities, put taskmasters over them. And the story picks up in verse 15 of Exodus 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipporah and the other Puah, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But, verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Right? Commanding what God forbids. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. Okay, time to put the Pharaoh in his place, right? Wrong. The midwife said to Pharaoh, uh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're tough, right? That's the implication. For they are vigorous and they give birth before we even come. I, I, I don't know. I, she's out working in the field and and the next thing you know, there's a little you know, rake in the baby's hand. They're just raking together. I mean, these guys, it's a hard working bunch. So, verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives because they lied. God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, feared God, he gave them families. The implication being many 
Many women served as midwives because they were barren. And God gave to them the greatest gift, to open their womb and allow them to have a family of their own because of their obedience to God over man. However, they were clever. They were clever. They did not stand up and make bold declarations. They simply quietly obeyed their conscience and the law of God. Thou shalt not murder. When an explanation was then required, they didn't seek to make examples of themselves or grandstand in front of Pharaoh's you know, people. I mean, think about it. If they openly defied the Pharaoh when they were questioned, they would have been removed from their communities, from their positions as midwives. But instead, they, they did so cleverly, thereby protecting the women and the babies continually by being able to continue to serve in their position and continue to rescue these children without arousing suspicion from the governing authorities as they obeyed God rather than man. So we must be clever, prayerful and clever. When God commands, excuse me, when the government commands what God forbids, thirdly, we must resist respectfully. Prayerfully, cleverly, respectfully. When Daniel was taken captive along with um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are their Babylonian names, um, they, were, they were brought into the king's court. They were the young, handsome, smart of the Hebrew people. And they were brought in to be educated in the ways of Babylonia and also to, to contribute to the wisdom of the empire. But they were also to be renamed, to be reclothed, and to be refed. And so they were fed the food from the king's table. But we read in Daniel chapter 1 Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Well, why? Well, because all of this was involved with idol worship. So these were sacrificial meals offered to idols. Perhaps they were pork based in some of them. But Daniel said, I, I, We have the law of God governing what we eat. And so therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, excuse me, I fear my Lord, the king, that is the king of Babylon, who assigned you your food and drink. For why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You would endanger my head with the king if you don't eat the good food. So Daniel says to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are Hebrew names, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter, tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine, and they were given drink, uh, excuse me, and they were given, you know, vegetables and water. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among them none was found quite like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And therefore they stood before the king. This was a promotion, if you will, in the empire, to stand before the king. Now, note the resistance respectfully. He asked permission of his overseer. He didn't insult or abuse the man. He didn't disrespect the king's request. All in a conciliatory fashion, seeking to contribute to the peace of the place, like Jeremiah 29.7 says, where they are in exile. Not seeking to cause a ruckus. Not seeking to make waves. Simply seeking to obey God in conscience. So they did so respectfully. Prayerfully, cleverly, respectfully. Fourthly, they did so with confidence in God. With confidence not fearing what might happen next. Daniel chapter 3, another example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered before they were thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, worshiping an idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We have no need to answer you on this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He is able to deliver us. See the confidence? And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, one way or the other. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Live or die, we won't do it. No matter the outcome, whether we are delivered or we perish, we will not bow down. But again, note the confidence, but also note the respect in tone and in language. They call him O King. They don't call him clown, rebel, pagan. They don't disrespect his office. They just simply say, we can't do it, O King. You see? So there's respect, but there's also a confidence that one way or the other, they are delivered. They're either delivered because they're saved from the consequences, or they're delivered because they are brought into the kingdom of God eternally when they pass from this life to the next. See the confidence. And so, what the Christian must do, they must resist when the government commands what God forbids. Secondly, they must resist when the government forbids what God commands. See the inverse? When the government commands what God forbids, and when the government forbids what God commands. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel is just a great example of a lot of these principles. In Daniel chapter 6, an edict was signed that said, No one is to pray to any god except Nebuchadnezzar, or to the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. And when Daniel, it says, when Daniel knew that the, go- the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So when the government forbids what God commands, Daniel prayed. He prayed. He resisted. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were commanded not to preach But what do they say? We must obey God rather than man. So if you're taking notes, that's the second example of resistance when the government forbids what God commands. We must obey God rather than man. Acts 4, they called and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen. They refused to stop preaching, but they did so respectfully. They did so without insult, and they were steadfast. And if you read the story in Acts, what you'll notice is that they were arrested. Their freedom was temporarily stripped. They were brought in for questioning. They were ushered out. They were ushered back in. Note, in all these things, they submitted. You taking me in? Okay. You want to bring me before the question? Okay. You kick me out? Okay. You bring me back in? Okay. In all these things, they submitted. They resisted when it came to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See? They submitted where they could, resisted where they must. And see, in this, you must recognize, friends, if we are to suffer the consequences of resistance to the governing authorities, we better make sure we do so because of the gospel. The church in 2020 was commanded not to gather. We were commanded by the governing authorities to stay home. At the time, this church, we had not fully transitioned to an elder-led model, and so the deacons and I discussed what we should do. And seeking to not cause waves, seeking to be respectful of the wishes, with very little information that the world seemed to have about what was going on, we opted to, to obey. We have options. Within a month, we realized there's more to this story. We were rescued, if you will, in this, con- in this state by a judge filing an injunction about six weeks after that edict was given that, that said churches can gather freely. 
That's a violation of their right to freedom, the freedom of their expression of their religion, and so churches can gather even during this massive worldwide shutdown. And so we did. However, even as we gathered, we gathered outside. You guys remember? Some of you started attending Hillcrest because we were gathering outside. We weren't trying to be defiant. We weren't trying to shake our fists in the nose or in the eyes of the government. We weren't trying to be boisterous. We were trying to live peacefully, but still be committed to the assembly. And when rain washed us out, we came inside. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't blast all over Facebook. You can't tell us what to do. We just obeyed. We obeyed the command to assemble. Many churches did not for a prolonged period. They did not obey God rather than man. I am convinced that there will be another testing ground in short order as to who will obey, who will obey God and who will obey man. Well, we must resist when the government commands what God forbids. We must resist when the government forbids what God commands. See, we must be prepared then to suffer the consequences. Or three, whatever we're on. Prepared to suffer the consequences. We must be prepared to suffer the consequences as a citizen of heaven. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.8. As a follower of Christ, the apostles rejected, excuse me, they rejoiced in the privilege to suffer for Christ's sake, to share in his shame. It says that they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They were prepared to suffer the consequences. Again, Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were prepared to suffer the consequences. The apostles did not attempt a Jewish revolt. The Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not try to whip up the crowd in a, in a furious insurrection against the unlawful edict of the king, they were simply prepared to pay the price for their obedience to God. And so, we must resist, but we must also be prepared to suffer the consequences, and to do so with dignity, and to be able to do so with a clear conscience. Fourthly, we must grieve the sin of the nation. Even as we resist, or even as we are frustrated with what's happening, we must grieve the sin of the nation. We read this in Ezekiel a couple of weeks ago. In Ezekiel chapter 9, God commands in this vision his angel to pass through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sighed and groaned over the abominations that are committed in it. They sighed and groaned. They grieved the sin of the city and they were marked out for rescue. And so later when the executioner of the Lord came through the city. Those who were marked as those who grieved over the sin were spared. And so we must grieve the sin of the nation. Finally, we must remember that God will deliver justice. Remember, God will deliver justice. He brought justice to Egypt. He brought justice to the wicked kings of Israel. He will bring justice in the revelation when Jesus appears riding the horse with the sword of justice. Well, let's close with just three quick points of application. We're out of time. In this, I would encourage us all to remember, number one, that Christianity is a whole life prospect. It's a whole life prospect. Listen to this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Every relationship is affected by your faith in Christ. Every single one, including your relationship to the government. Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. 
For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for us to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you to do so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. What's, what's going on here? Friends, there's no, there's no crevice, there's no corner of the life of the believer that is not touched by his instructions for us. Every relationship is affected by our, our relationship with Christ. Be it our work or our brother, be it the elders of the church, be it the government. This is all rooted in Romans 12.1, the backstory to this entire chapter or entire portion on the government where Paul appeals, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. Friends, I ask you, would you hold back some portion of your life from the one who gave up his whole life to rescue you? Christianity is a whole life prospect. Remember, remember number two, that God is the ancient of days. God is the ancient of days. A title for God first appearing in Daniel 7, verse 9, where Daniel sees a vision of this flaming throne, and there above it is the title, ancient of days. It means he is before time, above time, outside of time, governing time. Remember, God precedes and will, if you will, post-seed. I don't know if that's a word. Every governing authority on the earth. Knowing this helps us put temporary governments, no matter how big, no matter how intrusive, no matter how powerful or corrupt they are, into perspective. He is the ancient of days. And then finally, application point number three, do not mistake this for pacifism. No one is championing pacifism. Turn the other cheek isn't pacifism. John Calvin writes this. It is clear what our duty is. If the Lord has committed to us the protection of our life, our duty is to protect it. If he offers help to us, to use them. If he forewarns us of dangers, not to plunge headlong. If he makes remedies available, not to neglect them. But no danger will hurt us unless it is fatal. And in this case, it is beyond remedies. But what if the dangers are not fatal? Because the Lord has provided you with remedies for repulsing and overcoming them. What's the point? No one's championing that we just sit there and roll over. Part of being obedient to the governing authorities is also appealing to the government, hiring a lawyer, suing the government. That is as much part of obeying the authorities as anything. We're granted this right in our constitutional order. And so, should the right to assemble, the right to practice, continue to be infringed upon, we have every reasonable right to use what God has given to us. Not to roll over and give up. Only in doing so, we must maintain our conscience and our witness. So we can live rightly before outsiders. Well, these are hard and challenging things. And another thorough investigation this week has brought upon us glassy eyes, tired backs, I commend to you my notes. If you'd like them, I'm happy to share them. 
I commend to you the chapters from which we read in Exodus and in Daniel and Acts 4 and 5. And the next week when we come back together, we're going to talk about taxes and we'll conclude this little mini-series and move on from this uh, instruction. But I do think that it's timely and it's worth consideration, especially in our day. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you.